Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Bovinghausen. Today is Tuesday, July 21st, 2020. We had our uh, weekly Bible study today, and we covered um, a good chunk of Hebrews chapter. Let me turn this down. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we did a, a, a recap of what we talked about last time and, and a little bit of re-emphasizing of what we talked about last time um, in chapter 10, verses, I think, 19 through 25. And we continued on to uh, verses 26 through 39. And it wasn't quite as in-depth as I would have liked to be, but we covered some great ground and some good topics that uh, hopefully uh, it can be it'll be very relevant for y'all I will give you uh, a spoiler alert that uh, I do make a reference to a certain film uh, make a reference to the Scorsese film silence um, because it was pertinent to our discussion uh, I do ruin the ending so my apologies for that if you haven't seen silence you may just want to watch that movie before you listen to that part of the uh, Bible study, but I'll leave that up to you. (laughs) But uh, without further ado, we will continue on. Uh, Here is our Bible study for today on Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. Today is the uh, commemoration of the prophet Ezekiel, Uh, in case you didn't know. I know y'all are probably marking your calendars to find out which prophet are we commemorating today. Um, But today is the commemoration of the prophet Ezekiel, or Saint Ezekiel, if you're so inclined. Um, And so our prayer reflects that. Uh, So we'll begin with a word of prayer. So, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, through the prophet Ezekiel, you you continued the prophetic pattern of teaching your people the true faith and demonstrating through, through, through miracles your presence in creation to heal it of its brokenness. Grant that your church may see in your Son Um, our Lord Jesus Christ, the final end times prophet, whose teaching and miracles continue in your church through the healing medicine of the gospel and, and the sacraments. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so... We'll get started here. So we are in Hebrews chapter 10, going into the last bit, but before, um, the last bit of the chapter, but before we get into that, did anybody have any questions about um, what we went through the first, what was it? We, last week was verse 19 through 25, I believe. Um, as, and as usual, I like to do a little bit of a recap 
um, on this. So, does anybody have any questions about what we talked about last time? Um, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I mean, we had a lot of conversation about the blood, right? There's, uh, I'll just read it for y'all, it's not very long. Um, chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, uh, reads, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and, and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on... Oh, sorry, that's too far. So, as you see the day drawing near, I'm not getting to the next part yet. Remember how last time we talked about what it means uh, to draw near uh, with a true heart, and what does that sound like, right? Um, sounds like what we do on Sundays uh, with confession and absolution, right? Um, and I'll just do it again because it's worth repeating that... You see in Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews says, says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Sounds a lot like beloved in the Lord. Let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to grant us forgiveness. I usually have a problem with saying that word forgiveness, not because I have a problem with absolving people, it's just the speech impediment. But you see that that's kind of, that's where we get this. And how can we draw near to God? What allows us to draw near to God according to Hebrews here, chapter 10, verse 22? What is that alluding to? What does it talk of? Um, baptism, that's right. Being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Right? 1 Peter 3, 21. Uh, one of the proof texts for why we can say baptism does something. Baptism saves you because Peter writes... For baptism now saves you, and not of uh, a washing of dirt from one's body, but, but as a promise of a clean conscience in the sight of God. That he's talking about drawing near to, um, what does he say? We are drawing near in the holy places, right? Um, for us, 
what is the holy place now? Yeah, Diane's pointing. It's right there, right? I mean, it, it, and it's not because this has been blessed by a holy man. It's not because we've, like, said a few words over it that are magic. But it's because of what takes place right there on Sundays with the consecration of the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ being given for you, right? For your good. Not, not so that you can, you know, strut around saying, you know, it's <laughs> in some ways being self-righteous and saying, like, you know, uh, um, well, I don't know. I guess you can boast to people, yeah, I received the body and blood of Christ today. I'm doing all right, right? Not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has given me in that wonderful gift, right? And we do this not because we're so great. This is only done uh, through humility, right? We can't approach the throne of grace by anything that we've done by ourselves. We can only approach the throne of grace because of the one who has paid the price for our sins, right? Through Christ. And that's what he's getting at here. There's, there's a lot of uh, the imagery where he's saying, um, since we have confidence to enter, well, he's saying brothers, right? And in the King James, he probably says brethren, right? Uh, verse, six, first, verse 19 Yep, brethren, right? Brothers and sisters. The reason why it's saying brothers, though, is because, well, it's masculine. The Greek is masculine for that. It just means children. It means brothers and sisters. It's not misogynistic. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. It is, uh, though, because it's saying brothers, because I think I got into this last time, that being baptized, whether you're a man or a woman, makes you a son of God because you are a co-heir with Christ, the son of God, right? And I was trying to make a point saying, you know, it's kind of funny, we're all sons of God, uh, but don't worry, ladies, uh, we men are still part of the bride of Christ, which is church, right? So it balances out that way in some ways. But we say brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can approach the throne of grace, which is here in this place on earth and in all places where the sacrament is um, given. We can draw near because we are fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ in our baptisms, in our one baptism, right? Um, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Pure water that's not, you know, because it went through extra filtration, but pure water because of the word that is tied to it in that sacrament of holy baptism, right? That that's what makes the water pure. That's what makes us pure of heart is that washing. And it's not that we have to keep being washed over and over and over again, but we remember when we were washed in that one baptism for the remission of sins, which is why uh, some, some, some churches, in fact, the, the chapel at uh, the seminary in Fort Wayne where we went, 
um, in the chapel, they have this baptismal font right there at the, at the entrance. It's beautiful. It's marble. It's got eight sides, and there's always water in there. And the sacristan or the sexton, whoever handles the water, like there's always water there, and they always have to make sure it's clean, you know, because people come by, and they, you can, if you want, dip your finger into the water and make the sign of the cross, remembering your baptism. And, uh, you know, you don't have to do that, but a fair amount of people do it. And there's a funny story of, uh, yeah, my wife is laughing because she's probably remembering the story. Uh, some friends of ours from the seminary, a uh, pastor who's now out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I believe he's out there, uh, Jordan, uh, his oldest daughter, they have like three, they have like two daughters and a son, I can't remember how, how many kids they have, but their oldest daughter, she was coming into the chapel, and you know, the baptismal font's up here for her, and she's walking in, and she, and she like reaches in for the water, and she just goes, and just like splashes a bunch on her head, and the other seminarian who was there, um, Phil Jaseph, I think, yeah, name dropping here, y'all don't know who Phil is, but um, he's, I think, going into his fourth year now at the seminary. And um, he was kind of bringing these kids in, and he sees her dump this water on her, on her head, and he goes, no, 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 don't do that. And she just looks up at him, she looks up at him and goes, I'm remembering my baptism. <laughs> and she walks in, she keeps walking in, right? This is really cute, what kids do, right? Um, but she, does, she did it for the right reasons. She told him real good, and, and he, just, he just thought, well, okay, <laughs> go ahead, you know, right? I mean, uh, it's, it's just kind of funny, um, but it's true, and that's why you have these fonts at the beginning, uh, at, at, at the entrance of the church. Like, the church, the architecture of the church um, is set out for a certain meaning uh, that's not absolutely necessary, but it teaches something really great. Like we talked last time about how uh, most churches, not ours right now, but typically will have, uh, without the solid rows of chairs, will have the aisle, right? Because we are shown that now this is the holy of holies. This is the most holy place. And there's no longer a curtain there, but there's this pathway to the Holy of Holies, the Holy, 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 right? The place where God is enthroned in the body and blood of Christ in the supper. And we have direct access to it now. And in the same way, that's why a lot of churches have the baptismal font right at the entrance. And it's neat because it doesn't move. That whenever they have baptisms, you know, some of them will have it at the, at the entrance, some, it'll, some of them will have it in the center, in the midst of the pews, and when they have a baptism, everyone faces the font. And it symbolizes this child, this person, whoever is being baptized, that symbolizes them coming into the church as a child of God. It's very powerful in that way when it's done with that meaning behind it. And when you teach people this, it holds a little bit more significance in a certain way. Um, and in some ways, we have our baptismal font right here, and I, I, I know it's movable, but when it's right here, I would hope that people 
see that this is, in some ways, for a good reason, the barrier to entry. The barrier to entry that holy baptism, when you come up to receive the, the Lord's body and blood, it's because you are a baptized child of God who believes in what they are being given, the body and blood of Christ given and shed for, your, for the forgiveness of your sins and the strengthening of your faith. So, you know, I, I know the, the way we do it is not really conducive for that because you, have, because you get the body of Christ here and then you move on past the baptismal font, but just kind of see that the baptismal font is the barrier to entry. That without your baptism, and without that work of God in that holy baptism, um, you're kept from receiving the sacrament for your own good. Uh, because without it, you can't really be called, you know, there are extenuating circumstances where, we're not going to get into all of this, but for the, the purposes of receiving the sacrament of the altar, you need to be baptized. And this makes it clear here. This adds to this, right? We can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water in baptism. You could even add that. That's what he's talking about. Um, and because of this, right? Because of this wonderful working of God in holy baptism and in the sacrament of the altar where he gives us his body and his blood to eat and to drink for the forgiveness of our sins. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day. I don't know if in y'all's Bibles you see that capital D, day, drawing near. What day is he talking about? What's that? The day of judgment. Yeah, the last day when Christ will return and the dead will be raised right, for final judgment. Judgment Day, the reckoning. And he's saying this, right? He's saying, let us not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is an interesting exercise, and we're going to move on real quick after this. But this is an interesting exercise in thought, especially right now. In the midst of, you know, the pandemic, there are a lot of churches in other states that are barred from going to church, specifically, you know, California, Washington, places like this. The governors of these places have said, you know, um, <laughs> in some ways, well, actually not, not in some ways, but very hypocritically, they'll say you can go to a restaurant and sit and eat without a mask or anything like that. You can go to a bar or you can go to a business with a mask on and everything like that, but don't go to church. In some ways, they're kind of showing their colors and what they really prioritize. 
Um, yeah, they'll say it's not essential, right? Uh, but that's, what do we expect from the world? What do we expect from the world, the sinful world that has no idea what goes on in it's, church? It's interesting though, I think that what this is showing us is that how loud that encouragement is yes. during these times. Because looking at the other side of the same coin, if you listen to the news or, or read the paper or something, you're seeing the increase in depression. People are angry, people are short-tempered, people don't speak to each other on the streets any longer. And we're missing that encouragement mm. from other people. I mean, I find myself I'm more of a glass half full person, but now you're having good days and bad days because you're just bombarded with there, there's no outlet or there's no encouragement. <laughs> you don't see the encouragement. Right, yeah. And that's why it's loud. Right, so yeah, there's no encouragement, there's a lot of depression, suicides are up, there's a lot of things out there. Now, that's not to say, you know, that those are the only benefits of receiving the gifts of God in the Word and Sacrament, but they are certainly benefits that come, of course. They're, no, yeah, I know what you mean, but maybe that's a way for us to say... Hey, listen, you know, there's, there's a lot of push, even amongst churches and pastors, who say, let's make a good example for the community, for the world, that we're going to mandate certain things and we're going to follow step with our governing authorities. But at the same time, we need to ask, where's the line, right? When is it too far? Right. When is it too far? Yeah, because the thing is, is that we can, I, I, you know, the church has, has lasted. The church has stood through worse than this. All right. That's not an excuse for canceling church and saying we're only going online. It's a delicate issue, and it's a kind of complicated issue because you're dealing with people's consciences at this point. But at the same time, it makes a great and solid confession to say the church is open, and the church will remain that way because what goes on here really is the most important thing. Eternal life is given within these walls. And because of that, eternal life is proclaimed outside these walls. Does that make sense? This is the most important thing for humanity. To hear the word of God, to hear of the salvation, and be given the grace of God through hearing and through tangible means of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We need this. And more and more people are saying, it's not essential. It's not essential. You don't need to go and hear a motivational speech. And maybe that's, maybe that's some, uh, a, a bit of a, a critique, a fair critique on a lot of the church nowadays. Because not long ago, I don't know if it's still a thing, but even the atheists were getting together for atheist church on Sundays. 
And what they, they were just mirroring what they thought a lot of Christians did was they gathered together, they heard a motivational speech, they gave words of affirmation, and then they sat around and had donuts and coffee and talked. That's what they thought church was, possibly because of what they saw a lot of churches doing. Whereas now is the time for us to have this solid confession saying, no, atheists can never have what we have. They do not have the word of God. They just have empty words of man. We have the truth, and that truth is worth standing up for, patiently, gently, sometimes forcefully if need be, uh, forcefully at least in terms of how we speak, not necessarily force of violence or anything like that. But the thing is, is that this is important. And this is a, this is a big reason. There's a pastor I know out in California who, who was asking, where are other places in Scripture? I know that Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, but where are places in Scripture that say, you, you need to be in person. You need to gather in person. It's important. And for those of you who can't right now, because you have a legitimate fear of health. Talk to your pastor. Talk to him. Stay in touch. Receive the sacrament. Right? Receive communion. Because it's important. And what the author of Hebrews is getting at is that we ought to encourage one another Stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together because it's important. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the last day when Christ will return, draw near. Because the thing is, is that if you think that you can keep going without receiving the good gifts of God and you'll be okay, you're gambling. You're taking a serious gamble. Yes, the church is not just a building, but it is the place where the saints gather to be given the gifts of God. And for a time, it will be okay for you to separate because of health. That's fine. There will come a time, though, where it will be essential for us to say, come back. Now's the time to gather around the word and the sacraments with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Sorry, I've been on a bit of a soapbox here, but um, it, it's getting me, you know? You don't have verse 25 without verse 22. Yeah. And they all, you know, all ties. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jim. Yeah, you don't have verse 25. Yeah, you do not have verse 25, 24 and 25 without verse 22, right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And I think a lot of Christians get bogged down in thinking that, uh, you know, for better or worse, they'll say, my faith is a private matter, but that's not true. It can never really be a private matter. It can be a personal matter, but it ought never be private. Does that make sense? We as Christians are called to make a public confession. The world ought to see how we deal with each other and saying, 
Come back to church. We miss you. We love you. God loves you. We want you there to receive the gifts, right? Not because you're so great, but because, but because God has, because God is so good to give you these things for your good, right? All right? Let's keep going, because uh, we've got to get to the rest of chapter 10 here, and we're just barely going to make it, uh, because there's a lot here. There's a lot here, and I love this chapter. Um, any questions real quick before we move on? Any comments? Oh, really? Yeah, and oh. I know when Chris came and visited, you know, where's the Baptist? <laughs> yeah. And I walked right past it. Yeah. So, you know, but he would he right, Jim, he, he had it out there. Yeah, that's where we did the Baptist. Yeah, out there in, in the north. Where we all did. That's very interesting. Yeah. I actually really like that. Yeah. I really like that. Uh, for one thing, it keeps us from having to move it. <laughs> uh, and then in other churches, Yeah, there's some where they have to decide. Um, it's, it, you know, it makes you think, though. The fixtures of the physical church, you don't think about it all the time, but when you really start thinking, it's like, hey, what does it mean that that baptism font is movable? In some ways, it is very comforting. Like at the seminary, they have this marble font that is just fixed into the floor. You can't move it. And in some, in some ways, it's a good confession, huh? Lamb of God's got that too. Yeah. Well, and, 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 cool. Yeah, and, um, you know, different churches have it, like, up in the, I know Memorial in Houston has a really neat baptismal font that has flowing water and everything like that, and it's up in the chancel, which is different, and that's okay. But it's interesting to have that fixture as a solid confession of saying, your baptism is solid. It's unshakable. It's unmovable. Right? Um, now, could you move that baptismal font with some force? Yeah, sure. No argument there. But it still, on the surface, makes a good uh, strengthening of the confession in some ways. Yes, Audrey? I'm thinking, uh, Martin Luther stressed, make the sign of the cross, remember your baptism. However, somewhere along the line, it, Yeah, actually, yes, it has, uh, and, and it's, it's, I'm not going to, you know, of course, I'm not going to cast any sort of uh, blame 
or anything like that, and I know you're not asking me to, but you're asking a question that's very important. It's a good question. Uh, that it was a trend in some churches, in some Lutheran churches, uh, or you could say a majority, depending on where you are, that did kind of move things off to the side. They didn't let go of the confession of what baptism was or what baptism is, but they de-emphasized it in some way, which is unfortunate. But it never made baptism unimportant. It just didn't reinforce it probably with as much force as the church has always done or that the scriptures entreat us to do. Is that the influence of the reform? The, uh, that baptism isn't very important. Now, uh, my own daughter experienced that where they said this is, you prove that you're sure. You have to Churches moving it off to the side. Well, so here's here's what I'll say about that because we need to move along here. That there has been and there is a revival going on right now in a lot of Lutheran churches, especially with guys that I went to seminary with. They're going out into the parishes and they're emphasizing these things, not because it's something new, but we can go back to what you said at the beginning. You said that Martin Luther, and I would think with the entire Western church and even the Eastern church would say, it's a good thing for you to remember your baptism by making the sign of the cross. What had happened at a certain point in time was that for the sake of some semblance of unity across denominations, the Lutheran church um, would take the small catechism and we have the six chief parts, right? They are the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, Confession, Absolution, and the Lord's Supper. They would emphasize those first three more than Baptism, Confession, Absolution, and the Lord's Supper. It's not that they lost that confession, it's that they de-emphasized it to make that seemingly non-essential. To make it in some way 
more palatable for other Christians of different denominations to come into our doors and feel welcome. But that's not necessarily being honest, and it's not necessarily uh, the best way to go about it, especially with what we understand about these things and how God's grace is shown through them. So you are seeing an emphasis on those, on the entirety of the six chief parts of the small catechism now, uh, and more so, uh, for people's good, right? These things are good. We ought not slink away from them, and we ought not think that they're unloving to emphasize. They're actually very loving to emphasize, because we're emphasizing God's gracious work in these things. That's pretty good. I don't think we should shy away from that. Those are good things. Very good things. And little things we do, like where we place a baptismal font, uh, how we have the chancel situated, uh, you know, the stained glass in the church, the way it's set up, all help to emphasize these things. I mean, for goodness sake, our stained glass here, we have Jesus in the center with the word, what's on either side of him? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We make this confession and we pass by it every Sunday or whenever we come in here. Maybe it would do us some good to remember these things, right? Let's move on because we're running out of time. <laughs> but we're good, good stuff, good stuff. All right. Uh, so Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. I'll read that for us real quick and we'll get into it. Okay. For if we go on... For if we go on... Excuse me, sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will, that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three of, of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your prosperity, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may, you may receive what is promised. For, for 
excuse me, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So, continuing on here from the beginning of, or from, from, from that last part of chapter 10, uh, we, sh- we see a kind of shift, right, to this admonition, or from this admonition to not to, to stir up each other for love and good works, a shift from that to instruction. In the face of what? What's primarily being talked about here? I mean, there's, there's it's a few things. <laughs> but what stands out the most to you about what the, the author of Hebrews is getting at? You better believe. <laughs> you better believe. Yeah. And he's talking about consequences for unbelief, right? Sort of like a warning. A warning for sure, yeah. There's a warning. Um, there's kind of this interesting thing about we're back to this point of if we go on, uh, if we go on sitting, right? Kind of what we dealt with back in chapter 6, I believe. Where, you know, one who falls away after having received the good gifts of God, that the point is that uh, it's not that there can't be repentance, but there's no other way of salvation. That we have been given this, this, this great way and this great gift of salvation. There is no other way. So for someone to receive the good gifts of God, and then to treat them as if they were nothing, thinking that there was another way to grace and salvation, they're sadly mistaken, and that's what he's getting at here again, right? Um, That he's using this Old Testament comparison that, you know, if we look at anybody in the Old Testament who pushed away the laws of Moses, right? So, like, what was the punishment for disobeying, for dishonoring your mother and your father? A breaking of the fifth commandment. Oh, sorry, a breaking of the fourth commandment. What was the punishment? A bre- it was death. It was death. Why? Because of the generational problem you would have. If you had a son who was unruly, who disobeyed their own father, what were they going to do with the rest of the authorities in the land? Be disobedient. Now, we'd look at this and we'd say, it's a little harsh. Right? A little presumptive, right? But at the same... Yeah, it's a lot different than we are, than, than we're living in right now, right? That uh, there's a lot of permissiveness now, for better or worse. But we understand that if someone back then broke these commandments of Moses, given to him by God, how much worse is it going to be for someone who has been given the grace of God through Jesus Christ and then tramples on it as if it's nothing? It will be worse than death. It will be eternal damnation. That's what he's getting at here. And he's saying, he's warning us, right? He's warning all the people in the church. And he says, you know, um, 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That all other gods, lowercase g, right? All other gods, all other false gods, the idols that we have in our lives, whether it be money, uh, pride, uh, entertainment, sports, these things are dead. They're dead in comparison to the living, one, true, and only God. You fall into the hands of, you know, okay, you know, let's put it into a general context here, right? Uh, if you fall into the hands of the social justice mob by making a claim about something that is true, if you say, listen, um, something along the lines of, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman, you fall into the hand, and this is true, in the eyes of God, this is true. It ought to be true amongst us on a civil level as well, for the good of humanity. And you say this, and people attack you, and they strike you. You fall into the hands of their false God. And though they may take our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, they all be nothing, right? As our great hymn says, We have a mighty fortress in our God who upholds us in the one true faith. That we may fall prey to slander and to degradation from theft and all these things from the enemy. But that's nothing in comparison to what will happen to us if we fall away from God's grace. If we openly and unrepentantly object the spirit of divine grace given to us. Worse things will be to come for those who do that. Um, and he says, you know, recall the former days. Well, I'm trying to see here. Verse 28. You see these things here. Um, <laughs> I'll say this one thing before we end. Well, we're getting close to the end here. But I'll take the advice of a certain lady a couple times ago. Just take my time, right? We can just take our time on this real quick. Because this is worth it. Um, Dr. Kleinig in his commentary, um, he makes this point that in verse 28, we see, um, he says, anyone who has set aside um, the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He makes the point that in the Greek, there is this understanding of willfully doing these things, right? Because you can read this verse to somebody saying, you know, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, you could, a sensitive conscience would say, oh, have I done that? Has there been a time where I've deserved death for this? Well, short answer, yeah, probably. <laughs> but here's the thing, is that he says, um, Sinning willfully, verse 26, right? Sinning deliberately after receiving these things is the key portion. The deliberate offense is some act of apostasy from God by participation in service to pagan gods, even if those false deities are disguised and their worship purports to be that of the true God. Think about that. That Satan can, can and does trick Christians into thinking that they are worshiping the one true God 
in some way. I'm not going to get into specifics because the devil's very tricky in these, these, these ways. But there are ways that Satan can trick. And I think that our reformers, Luther was one when he was uh, speaking with uh, Ulrich Zwingli. If you all know about who Zwingli was. There was this, uh, was it the Marburg Colloquy? There was this time where reformers met. Luther and Zwingli met and they tried to join forces. And Zwingli was of the stripe that said that the sacraments were representational. He was the godfather of modern day Baptists and sacramentarians who hold that baptism is just a representation of some things. The Lord's Supper is just a representation of the body and blood of Christ. And whenever Zwingli would get into these little ways of getting around the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, Luther would always say, it is, is the body of Christ, is the blood of Christ, not represents, so much so to where he wrote on the tablecloth, ist, right? is, to the point where whenever Zwingli would go off topic and say, you know, but it is a representation, he would go, and he would bang on the table on is, is, is. It is. And by the end of it, they couldn't reconcile this difference. And Luther literally said to Zwingli, you are of a different spirit than me, than us. That's harsh, because what other spirit is there besides the Holy Spirit? Demonic spirit. Take that for what it's worth. That's what Luther said. And I think to some degree, we would say that it's dangerous to say that we can't take Jesus at his word when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. It's dangerous to think that Christ means something other than what he says. Does that mean they're not Christians? No. Let me make that very clear. It makes it clear, though, that it's dangerous ground you're treading on. It's dangerous. And we all the more should be able to say this to, to fellow Christians who believe differently on these things because we care about them and we don't want them to believe falsely about this stuff. So, throwing it out there, we're running out of time, <laughs> but we see here, uh, moving on, think about it. Think about what I just said, all right? Verse 29, um, you see this bit where he says, uh, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? And we see here that he most likely is meaning open apostasy, open rejection of the faith that they had been given by outside pressures because Christians at this time were pressured heavily not just through violence and persecution but but through their jobs through their professions you couldn't hold a certain job if you were a Christian that sounds fast approaching what we're getting into these days that I honestly read this part from Dr. Kleinig. He was getting into it, and he said, you know, um, 
It implies, uh, you know, uh, let me see here. The teacher considers the case of those who sin intentionally by spurning God's, uh, God, God's son and the blessings he provides for them in the divine service. Why they should wish to do this is left unstated, but in verses 32 through 34 seems to imply, right? He's saying about all the things they lost, the persecutions they suffered, right? Verses 32 through 34 seems to imply that social and economic pressure from a pagan environment, if not active discrimination and public persecution, may have tempted them to reject Christ and their fellow believers. And what's the thing that I wrote in my margins? Sensitivity training. Think about it. Modern day sensitivity training by corporations and businesses. If you speak out in a certain way as a microaggression, put it in quotes, nowadays you can't even, I mean, let alone sharing your Christian faith, you can't even say, you know, oh, where are you from? That can be taken as a microaggression or something like that. Imagine what you said if you said at the water cooler at your job, you know, oh, isn't that crazy what the Supreme Court just ruled about, you know, um, gay marriage or something like that? It's just craziness because, you know, Scripture teaches us that, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman. Or can you believe that the Supreme Court is still upholding Roe v. Wade after all the millions of babies that have been killed? When it's clear that this is against God's will, someone hears you say that, you can get in trouble from HR, and to keep your job, you will have to go through something like sensitivity training. Right? It's like, that's the first thing that came to my mind. What about you? No, I was just going to say. <laughs> Sure. But the owner is a practicing Christian, and on Thursdays at 3 o'clock, they have Bible study. Oh. And not everybody, they only have about 25 employees. Not everybody has to go. Right, it's not mandatory. It's not mandatory. Sure. You can stay in work or you can go home, you know, at that mm -hmm. time. And I'm just, you know, he told us all about it. He was really excited. Yeah. Yeah. There's still something out there. Sure. I know what you're talking about. That's fast diminishing, though. That is yeah. not the norm, for yeah. sure. Uh, no. So that's... Going to charm school is probably the best I've done. Going to charm school. Or that's what we used to call it. Right. It's pretty swift these days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're done. If you don't comply, if you don't go through the training, you are done. Well, it seems to be these days if you don't confess your wrong. That's right. You're not. Right. If you. Any defense. It's not a matter of going through a couple of weeks of charm school. Yeah. It's a matter of renouncing what you said publicly, public shaming. Right. Or you're gone. Yep. It's true. And it's very sad. Um, but it also made me think of this, and I'll end on this point. Okay, because we're running out of time. Um, I'll, I'll end on this point. Has, ha, have any of y'all seen the movie Silence? It was a Martin Scorsese film. Uh, I think it came out when I was in the seminary. 
It's about these um, Jesuit priests that go to Japan, back in the middle of feudal Japan where uh, Christianity was outlawed. It's based on a novel, all right, but based on actual occurrences. Uh, these two young Jesuit priests go to Japan to try and find out what happened to their mentor, who was a missionary there. And uh, he's disappeared. No one's heard from him for a while. But then all of a sudden, they get wind that the Japanese have, a, uh, have an apostatized priest in their possession that is writing propaganda against Christian teaching. So they go to investigate, knowing that it's a, probably a one-way trip. Because the Japanese at the time were brutal in their persecutions of the Christians. Uh, and you see it in the film, how they depict some of these things. Uh, and they, they pretty much, what happens, and, and I'll spoil the ending a bit for y'all. But the one young priest that's left, because the other one, you know, uh, dies in a certain way. But the one that's left, what happens is they stop torturing him. And they torture other people in front of him, saying, if you don't renounce, they will be hurt. We won't kill him. We'll bring him to the point of death and bring him back so we can hurt him even more. And what happens is they say this, and it made me think of this because he's talking about trampling under the Son of God. What they do, they have a confiscated um, engraving of this uh, picture of Christ. And these people are being tortured in front of him, and he said, and he's telling them, the priest is telling them, recant, deny Christ, and save yourselves. And his tormentors are saying, they already did. They already did. But we don't care. We want you to recant. We want you to deny your God. So they put this picture of Christ that's engraved on stone in front of him. And they said, all you have to do, all you have to do is just put one little toe on it. That's all you got to do. Put one little part of your foot on, that, on the face of your God. And all this stops. It all stops. Just that one little thing. And then this is where it gets really insidious. Because depending on how you believe, this next part makes a world of difference. You hear this voice inside the priest's head. And this voice sounds very warm and welcoming. Right? This voice sounds very compassionate. And the voice just says, go ahead. Step. I can take it. I can take it. Go ahead and step. Now, is that the voice of God? I would say it's a strong case that that's the voice of Satan talking to him, saying, go ahead and step. Because what Jesus says is, if you deny me before man, I will deny you before my Father. So, think about that. That he does. He steps. He steps, 
and that he lives the rest of his life comfortably, quietly. They keep a close eye on him to make sure he doesn't go back to what he believed. But then at the very end, you see him, you know, die of old age. And they cremated people at that time. And you see that when he, you get to see inside of the funeral uh, pyre kind of thing, he's like put in this kind of uh, cask kind of thing, you know. And you see that in his hand is a small cross. Maybe to say that although he denied it openly and publicly, he still held a private faith. God forbid we take this view. God forbid it. Because like I said, your faith can be a personal thing, but it ought never to be a private thing. Right? He died. It's fictional. But he died having publicly and openly denied the Son of God. Thinking that all he had to do was just keep it to himself. Those are the kind of pressures that Christians can face, and they do face all across the world. And we have to keep these things in mind because we are not immune to this. We're not immune in this world, in this country right now. Uh, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I'm not trying to say that there's no hope. What I am trying to say is that we need to be diligent. Because even when times are comfortable and soft, those are dangerous times too. Because the temptations of the world and everything like that can easily lure us away. And now that the truth is under assault, especially the truth of God, uh, we need to be ever more diligent in knowing that... <laughs> we have a better possession and an abiding one. Right? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Through trusting in the one who has set forward this great promise of salvation and fulfilled it in full. And all we have to do is hold on to that promise and be patient, trusting in that, in that good and gracious God who gives us all good things and promises us even more. Right. All right, we're out of time. <laughs> but hopefully this has you know, been, uh, made you think a little bit differently. We'll cover some of this again next time. Uh, and you know, We'll go over it a little bit, but we'll move on into chapter 11 next time. Uh, any questions before we end? We need to end. We've been in here for a while. Nope? Okay. Uh, if you do, feel free to talk to me afterwards. But let's, let's, uh, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.